Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCore subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hey there, listener. This is Dr. Dakota Sharp, audiologist, clinical assistant professor, and lifelong learner, inviting you to join me on an exciting new podcasting journey known as On the Ear. As you know, audiology is ever-evolving, so it's critical as professionals that we learn and grow as well. Every other Thursday, On the Ear will be interviewing a variety of clinicians and researchers spanning a wide range of hearing and communication topics. From pediatrics to geriatrics, cochlear implants to vestibular, speech to hearing, and everything in between, this podcast will provide exciting insights that you can use in your clinical practice. Each episode of On the Ear is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs when you complete the accompanying pod course through speechtherapypd.com. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. 
I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today I'm joined by the amazing co-host, Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP. And y'all, we have so much to cover because today we are tackling medical terminology. Ah, that's so much. Um, I remember being a CF sitting in my first official rounds you know, with all the doctors, all the, the head of nursing, and I was solo. And I remember writing down every diagnosis that I wasn't familiar with and every test I hadn't heard of. And by the end of my first solo rounds, one, I felt like an idiot. And two, I think I literally wrote down like every patient diagnosis and like every um, test that they were planning to run on them. And it was a super humbling experience. So that night after I got home with my head hung like a beat puppy, I, um, I decided to make an investment in myself and in my patients. And I turned around and I went back out. Um, it's like a Barnes and Noble nearby. And I picked up a medical terminology, terminology flashcard book. And I'm old. So this was like pre everything being on the computer. I mean, it was like good old fashioned, like tear the flashcards out and study that way. And y'all, it helped. But it seriously only barely scratched the surface because I was pursuing the knowledge wrong. I wanted to learn all the terms for all the things for all ages. And that was my, my heart was in the right place, but my execution of that was incorrect. Um, but with grace and age and gray hair, which I'm super excited about because my roots are getting done on Tuesday, whoop, whoop, um, I figured out that I needed to pursue the terms that were pertinent to my setting and the patients that I was working with in that environment. And that was a huge 
game changer. So today, Aaron and I are going to share the terms that we have learned along the way. And I am stoked because Aaron knows the NICU terminology firsthand, and she knows it better than I do, which I love because she's going to fill my cup, and in turn, we can build each other up. So um, Aaron, huzzah, hi, I'm super geeking out. So let's do it, lady. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Life is good life is good how how wonderful life life is good yes we're getting yes. fall weather which i'm pleased with because i can bring out all my sweaters <laughs> uh, y'all aaron literally has like seasonal closets which is really cool i i appreciate a lot, that a lot of people do <laughs> that's not i mean i got like scrubs and mom gear and like mm, i very i go from tank top harry potter shirts to short sleeve to long sleeve <laughs> So it's fair. <laughs> I mean, I guess I then do too have a seasonal wardrobe change. Yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So take it away. How did you, how did you come to crash coursing NICU terminology? Like, did you prep before you went? I mean, how did that work for you? Um, I tried to, but I think the big thing about the NICU is that there's, I, I guess I would call it like slang terminology that they use. And you think you're prepared, but then you realize there's all these um, diagnoses just of prematurity because it's like um, it's not considered it's expected for these patients because they're premature. So they make sure to preface it with like of prematurity. So, for example, you have ROP, which you'll see in a lot of your patients' notes, which is retinopathy of prematurity. So they have these deficits with their eyesight because they're premature. And then when they become full term, if they're still having these issues, then it becomes another diagnosis. So there's a lot of diagnoses that I was not aware of because I had never worked with these patients when they were premature. I'd just seen them after they were out of the NICU. Um, and the big thing that I had to do was just anytime I saw something in a note and didn't know what it was, I would ask my, I would write it down. I would research it. I would ask my supervisor. I Googled a lot. Um, wait, preface that we're not talking like Wikipedia, Google, like, like I look, like I research a lot of these terms, um, because you just kind of learn as you go and they're going to use acronyms throughout their notes. It was like reading a foreign language at first because I had no idea what a lot of these terms meant. Um, and so I kind of want to go through some of those like slang terms because these are these are terms that you'll hear the nurses say a lot. And you'll hear that, especially in rounds, these are the terms that they'll use to ask questions because they don't have time to, I mean, they don't have time to go through the, all of the technical terms. Um, and these are things that I would look through when I would go through my case history. So the big, when you're working with these kids, a lot of time or these babies, a lot of times you're working with the ones they'll call them feeder growers. And these are the patients that have pretty much gone through the rough of it and they're just working on upping their oral feeds. So when you go to rounds and talk to the physicians and are 
looking at what patients you might be getting consults for soon. Um, the feeder growers, a lot of times they'll just pass through, like you'll go through on Tesla, they'll go through a patient, okay, feeder grower, feeder grower, feeder grower, not talk much about them because to them, they're just working on their feeds. Um, some of so the that other, like, it's basically OT speech doing that, right? OT speech, yeah. They're not like super, yeah. you know, and, and these are the patients that you a lot of times have to fight for because they, to the, to the neonatologist, it's like, why aren't they eating more? I basically saved their life. And to you, you're trying to make a, this feed be of quality so that they don't get readmitted, um, after their discharge. Yeah. Uh, the when you look through their chart, they'll have they call them A's and B's, and A's and B's are their periods of apnea and bradycardia. So apnea when they're having um, less oxygen, they're not breathing, and bradycardia when their heart rate slows down. So if their breathing slows down, we ca- also call it a DSAP, and if their heart rate slows down, also call it a bradycardia. And a lot of times those are indicators of how they're doing in their feed, if they're having DSATs, if they're slowing their breath, if their heart rate's slowing down, those are signs that they're not handling their feed as well. Because remember, breathing comes first, then swallowing. Wait, and yes, and that's pertinent, just not to the NICU, because some of your NICU oh, sure. grads will get sent home on apnea monitors, um, or they'll have, um, oh God, what is the sock? There's a really cool little- oh, yeah. It's like an owl. I made that owl. Owlet? Yeah. Oh, no, that is a uh, PJ Mask character. So, but, oh, um, okay. PJ Mask. I was like, I know Owlet. No, yes, but there's there's an owl sock Owlet. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the boys were fought over who would grow up and marry Owlet for a brief period of time in our um, our world. So yes. Um, but that's that's important for mm-hmm. the transition. So that way you know, okay, what was their baseline? Um, how frequently did they bradycardia with feeds? How how low did they go? Because they'll get sent home and they may still have little drip, little dips, little drips. Good Lord, Michelle, wake up, drink more coffee. And then um, come home. But we as the home health practitioner or the outpatient clinician still needs to be aware of what they went through. Mm-hmm. And what they're being monitored for. The like physicians are more concerned if they're bradying. So if their heart rate is slowing down, they're more concerned. I think our NICU had a policy. If a patient had a brady, they and they were getting ready to discharge, they'd have to wait five days without a brady to be able to send them home. Um, episodes of having like DSATs weren't as, you know, sometimes kids, babies do hold their breath. Um, so they, they're definitely more concerned with their heart rate. And it's funny, it's not funny, but some of these babies, you know, we'd feed them and be like, I just don't think they're ready for discharge. And you best believe they probably had a Brady and we're like, I'm going to stay here for a couple more days. Um, (laughs) This is the good life. I'm going to hang out in the NICU a little bit longer. (laughs) I'm not ready. Um, And I mean, Brady's are scary. Like those were scary moments, but those are things that you'll that they'll say at like in, at least in our notes you would look every day and every daily note it would have how many Brady's and how many DSATs they had and it would tell you if they were during a feed if they were not during a feed because um, some kids would also have periods of that like if they're refluxing because these kids these babies are really high risk to reflux. Um, another term that you'll look at is like they call them I's and O's. 
that refers to the amount of like fluid, whether it's IV or their feeds that the baby takes in and how much they pee or poop out. So input output. Mm -hmm. So input output, that's very important for nurses because they're always monitoring that. We had one patient that didn't have a bowel movement for like a week or like after they were born. So that was like very significant. Um, Those are, sorry, that um, I'm I'm just, y'all, a breastfed baby can go, a breastfed baby can go three to seven days without a bowel movement. That's what is stated. However, not necessarily. And sometimes our patients will be discharged with only like, if they weren't in the NICU, but say they were just full term, they may be discharged after like one bowel movement. And it might've been triggered by rectal stimulation, which is like um, glycerin suppository or um, a gloved finger um, stimulating or massage. And then they get sent home. However, often we're missing Hirschsprung's disease. And so when you're looking at your input output, that's why a food log is so critical for our tiny humans, because that will tell us, uh, okay, how frequently are they actually having bowel movements? Because you're not going to catch every Hirschsprung diagnosis prior to discharge. I mean, we're catching Hirschsprung's disease Mm -hmm in children two and three years of age, because it's not at the colon, it could be farther up in the small intestines. And it's just for whatever reason, the ganglion cell didn't develop. So input output is critical. Yeah. Sorry. Food log. Make a food log. I mean, and they care a lot about, I mean, input as far as how much they're taking orally, how much they're having to get Mm -hmm. to fed, um, what percent percent is a big, thing for them they'll you know and then it would be frustrating they'd up their feeds and they'd say their percent of intake is less than it was last week and you're like well you just up their feeds that would be lost in communication sometimes um (laughs) sorry I could hear the frustration in your voice just like yeah but obviously (laughs) um increased YouTube volume sorry Mm -hmm. no you're fine they HUS is their acronym for head ultrasound, which most almost all of the babies in the NICU will get. And then I think it's at, and I could be wrong, um, I think it's at 37 weeks that they can get an MRI um, just to clarify, make sure that there's no other brain damage that they didn't catch in the head ultrasound because that can definitely happen. Um, their leads are the monitor wires that um, monitor their heart rate, their um, breathing. And so those are, we just always want to keep an eye on their leads. Uh, they call, um, another term is gavage feedings, which is their NG or OG feeds. They'll, that's what they call them in the NICU. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I haven't worked, I worked inpatient, but I haven't worked with adults to know if that's the, a similar term. Um, they also call it, and I mean, we use this, we talk about this a lot, like priming the gut. So that's when they start feeds to get the digestive system ready to start and fully functioning. They can also call those trophic feeds, um, which is what we talk about a lot with if your gut can't handle it, your mouth can't handle it. They know this in the NICU. It's very pertinent in other areas as well. 
um, residuals when they continuing with tube feeds are what's left inside um, their stomach at the start of the next feeding. So nurses will go in and check to see if there's any residuals, if there's any feed left that has not gone through the rest of their digestive system. And that can be really important to see um, if they're empty, how they're emptying is, um, so monitoring for things like that. I, I have a thought. Residuals happen every which way. So yeah. one one way that they'll check residuals, and and I've seen, I've heard feedback from different practitioners that we don't do it as much as we used to, or um, you only do it for like certain um, home health patients, not all home health or outpatient patients. NICU's different, but what they'll do is they'll connect a syringe and they'll just pull out um, or vent and see how much literally comes back out of an, um, out of the stomach into the syringe. And so mm-hmm. this is critical because say the kid had a three ounce feed and you're getting two and a half ounces out two and a half hours later and that means their body only emptied a half an ounce down to the small intestines. Mm-hmm. So how are you supposed to put more volume in orally or through another G tube? Right. And so um, we've, I've personally asked doctors, and you know they've had nurses check the residuals, um, and that's been what drove us to get a second opinion for GI. Yeah. Yeah. For like gastric emptying, um, motility issues. But like, that's why residuals are so, so important because you can't put anything else in there if what's in there hadn't gone through yet. Right. So for these, these patients who are just starting to get any sort of feed into their stomach, it's very, um, and if their residual is too high, like I, there were times where I'd go in to feed a patient the residual was like, you know, I'm trying to think like 20 cc's, 30 cc's, almost a whole ounce. And the nurse is like, yeah, we're mm-hmm. not doing the feed. So mm-hmm. um, that's really important because otherwise, I mean, it's going to come out somewhere. Um, I just, I, I'm in awe of you. I, I just remember that being wheeled into watching Bear be in the NICU. That's when, whenever you're describing Mm-hmm. Or we're talking about cases like that. I just, I just remember that moment. And hats to you and everyone else who works in the NICU. Thank you, because I just, oh. I mean, it was, yeah. I'm all emotional. He's six on Friday, so yeah. Thank you. Yay! <laughs> all right, keep going. <laughs> um, so BPD is a diagnosis you'll see a lot: bronchopulmonary dysplasia, um, and it's when it's, they use this diagnosis and there's, I forget what the other term is that they don't use as much anymore, but they're kind of interchangeable. Um, and it's just a condition of the lungs that is a result of the breathing problems as an infant. So if, if these breathing conditions continue and there's a criteria for it, um, as far as like how long they have to be on oxygen for this to be diagnosed. Um, and I, cannot remember exactly what that is, but basically if they continue to have a need for CPAP or high flow oxygen for 
a longer period of time than is expected then they have this diagnosis and this can this is a big contributor for feeding difficulties because if you're having problems breathing you're going to have problems feeding for these patients um so you will see that a lot um it says i pulled it cincinnati children's has a killer website on it um it's chronic lung disease of prematurity mm -hmm. um most often in low weight infants born more than two months early. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you'd see that a lot. Um, you would see, um, what's my next one. And like we've talked about this before, but these patients can have an OG tube through their mouth or NG tube through their nose. Um, it, a lot of times, not a lot of times they're, most NICUs are pretty good about transitioning to an NG tube, but there would be times where we'd be asked to give like oral stimulation and work on the pacifier and the kid still has an OG tube. And you're like, we're going to start to work on that. Maybe let's move this thing out of their mouth. Um, <laughs> but you know that you're going to see a lot of different lines too with, with these patients, especially when they're, when you're getting them early, um, the pick line peripherally inserted central catheter, um, or percutaneous central venous catheter. Um, and it's a type of tube that's inserted into the central large vein. So you need to be very careful about those. I had a patient that had um, rotate what? malformation of his, uh, was it his small intestine? I forget which organ it was, but he had mal malrotation. So he had to have surgery. He had, he was getting gravity feeds. So he had the, um, he was getting breast milk, which was wonderful, would be gravity fed. So it'd be hung up. He had, I think he had a pick line. He, um, had all his leads, uh, IV line for other fluids. And we'd be working on like some oral feeds and it was, terrifying because you just have a million lines and you have to like not dump the tube feed that's hanging from the syringe that's like the nurses have magically hung up perfectly so just be very aware of all the lines yeah that's the oof. um okay so this is just me thinking aloud um how, how do you, when you go to pick them up, did, are you responsible for the wrapping of them so that their arms are straight? That's a naive question, but like, I've never worked in the NICU so that you don't accidentally hit them or does like the nurse Usually, wrap them? If they were like a, if they're really complex, I mean, all these babies are pretty complex, but if they're a really complex patient, most of the nurses would swaddle them. Um, because they, you know, they changed them and they fixed their lines and they checked everything. So most of the time, like if they, if they have a lot of lines, the nurses would usually swaddle them for you. If it was a, if it was a baby that, even if it was a baby that was on like high flow oxygen, um, a lot of times I'd go in, I'd change them to wake them up. Um, and then I would swaddle them, which let me tell you. If you don't have a child of your own, swaddling is, is hard. 
it took me so like I had to ask and I asked nurses like I mean I have no shame in being like do you have any tips and tricks for this because I mean they've done this forever it's like they throw around these kids you're just like I mean I guess they're not as fragile as I thought they were I mean not throw them around but they're like they know exactly what they're doing but you're just like you're so confident (laughs) in how they do it you're just like wow I need to I need to learn from them. So like I'd ask them questions, but yeah. And, and I mean, if it was that, that patient specifically, like the nurse would help me because it kind of was a forehand job to get him to where he mm-hmm. needed to be. Um, and I mean, NICU nurses are fantastic. Like they, mm-hmm. I mean, I learned so much from so many of them. Um, there's a lot of like acronyms and I might just go through a few of them that you're going to see all the time. Um, we talked about BPD. Um, we talked about, well, you'll see CNS, obviously central nervous system. Um, CPAP, a lot of these kids are gonna be on CPAP. A lot of these patients, and we would go through in our notes when we did an eval, we would go through case history and we would talk about all of the transitions that they had um, as far as ventilators because they, a lot of, if a kid has, baby has BPD, a lot of times they might be intubated and extubated multiple times, which is very important to notice if you're going to eval these babies, because that's going to have an impact on their swallow and their breathing. And they could have Mm -hmm. some sort of injury because their airways Mm -hmm. are so small. Um, so keeping an eye on that, um, PVL is a big one that you're going to see with these patients, which is periventricular leukomalacia, and it's a brain injury that specifically affects premature infants, and it's just death of small areas of the brain. Uh, they mm-hmm. kind of call them holes, but you'll you'll see a lot of that. Um, I talked about retinopathy of prematurity, respiratory distress syndrome. That's RDS. That's another term that they use sometimes um, in place of BPD. Um, we talk a lot in adults too with TPN, total per- sorry, my cat just decided to, um, sit on my computer. <laughs> total perinatal nutrition. Yes. Um, yes. So that's the IV where, yeah, that's, and, I mean, that's we not good. Do, we can do another episode at some point about all of the vent supports because that's just a lecture. That's just an episode. Oh, well. let's just do let's just do a whole episode on lungs. Oh, that'd be cool. I like that. Oh, I let's do that. All that, but we don't have the time. No, 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 no. We, yeah, we still got to cover two other sections. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So while while you were okay, there's there's a term that I want to add to this mix: the National Association of Neonatal Therapists (NAND). Not to be confused with the NAT. But mm-hmm. it's an organization designed for NICU OTPT SLPs. Okay. There is also the um, National Association of um, Neonatal um, Nurses, and there's a National Neonatal Therapy Association that you can get a certification through. Uh, hold on. I will pull that one. Done, done done. It is the National Neonatal Therapy Nat- National Certification Board. 
that's intense, but it is for those that work in the NICU or, uh, and want to demonstrate, um, their excellence and advanced learning and skill set. And, you know, there's a nominal fee. You do have to pass an exam and maintain extra CEUs, but I would highly recommend uh, checking those associations and that certification out. If NICU is your jam, we thank you. I would look into that certification process. So just as a heads up. Three more and then I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it, lady. So you'll see LBW, extremely low birth weight. Um, You'll also see SGA, small for gestational age. LGA, large for gestational age. And if you're working with these patients that are on breast milk, um, you might have, or if they're on formula, you might have a HMF, which is human milk fortifier. So they'll add fortifiers to the formula or breast milk to add calories if they're not growing well. Those are like ones that you'll see a lot. So I think I'm done. There's so many more, but those are important. Those are, those are fantastic ones. Yes. Okay. Huzzah, NICU. I can. So I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, but yes. Okay. Well then we're going to go to gut because that's my favorite. I love the belly. So GI terms, can we make a switch? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then a big one to go between the two is, um, oh my God, I just brain farted on it right out the gate. Necrotizing intracolitis death of gut. And often we see that in the NICU, right? And it's because we're not supposed to add thickened liquids or thickener to liquids and xanthan gum thickener. Everybody I am sure is well aware that um, Simply Thick was reformatted uh, because it, and with a label warning, do not administer younger than 12 months of age because what was happening, it was causing, um, the uh, blood vessels at the watershed area between the duodenum and the ileum, which are the first and second portions of the small intestines. There's a watershed area right there uh, where you go from breakdown of foods, final stages of breakdown of foods to absorption of foods. And it was killing the gut right there. So neck. Well, in the NICU, you survive neck. They do surgery and typically it turns into a diagnosis of short gut syndrome. So when they do the surgery to pull out the dead gut, they do um, like, they'll do like a pull through and which is similar to what they do for Hirschsprung's disease, but they'll pull the intestines together. Some of these babies end with an ostomy bag um, uh, because their body can't process the stool. Uh, Other ones, uh, you know, they'll reattach, but yeah, necrotizing. Had had neck. Yeah. And it Ugh. was, I mean, you just see it. He had not seen bag. So you would just feed and then you'd see it come through. How quickly that was something I've always wondered. Like, could you like see it happening then and there? Or was it like a little bit later? Like, what did that look like? I don't remember. I, and I don't know why I don't remember. Um, but I remember being very like not anxious, but I mean, it was a very different experience to to just under like 
you still want him to get that experience of feeding. Mm-hmm. And so we definitely advocated for that, but I just, it was very interesting. I had a little guy years ago, red hair, freckles. Oh, he was so naughty. And he had Down syndrome and he had an ostomy bag. And if he was all done, he was, I was working in the public schools as a speech teacher. This was like, while well, I was getting my master's degree. And if he signed all done and you didn't stop when he wanted you to stop, he would pop his ostomy bag to get out of doing something. And then he would go, Oh, oh and then act like wicked surprise. And it just like exploded God. Oh, he was such a pistol. Oh, yeah. Oh my god. Oh bless. I love that kid so much, but like I learned real quick that when we're all done, we had to like distract and make sure that like we like redirected in the most positive manner to the, you know, our tick phonology activity that we were working on at the time. Okay, GI continuation. All right. One um that has popped up uh pretty frequently on my caseload is um exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. So we think of like endocrine pancreatic insufficiency and the common one for that is diabetes. But for your children that have diabetes, they, or they have um, like they're missing a gallbladder or they have problems with their liver. Well, your pancreas is also responsible for uh, producing digestive enzymes. But if you have pre-existing conditions to your pancreas, your liver, your gallbladder, it increases the likelihood that you're going to have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency and your body just does not make enough digestive enzymes. So uh, what happens is that you'll see um, variations in the stool um, and the you might have more distension in the stomach. And, and we find this diagnosis out through stool sampling. So, um, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, one of the moms was like, I'm really glad I have a fridge in the garage because I had to keep three days worth of pool poo collection in the same container, not separate, but the same container. And then they kept that in the fridge in the garage. So exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we covered short gut syndrome, uh, rumination syndrome, which um, rumination, uh, it's where we swallow our food down, but we can bring it back up to chew on it subsequently and then swallow it back down. Um, now there are, um, psychological components to rumination syndrome that must also be acknowledged. Um, some individuals, um, some individuals who have had neglect and abuse and trauma are prone to this, uh, eating disorders. So if you see this happening or suspect, uh, that that may be going on, then you do need to do your due diligence and speak with physician, um, the PCP speak with GI, um, maybe make a referral to psychologist, or if it's warranted, then also make a referral to um, Department of Social Services or where whoever your safety measure is within your state. Um, 
I've, I've personally experienced it one time in my caseload and it was because of um, severe and profound neglect and the child was in a foster home, but they would go like days without food. And that's how they, they, I mean, they filled a need, right? So super sad, but um, it is what it is. Um, okay. Motility concerns, big time, big time, um, motility concerns. Um, we can have delayed gastric emptying delayed. Um, so the stomach doesn't move, um, delayed GI motility. We could have uh, pyloric stenosis, which is typically found before you exit the hospital, um, after birth, um, uh, it could be a um, motility issue with the esophagus. Uh, we, you and I did that one a while ago, the jackhammer esophagus, a, a structural deficit in the esophagus strictures. I feel like I'm like rapid fire, like spitting these out because I just get really, really excited. Okay. All right. So the other day, this is exciting. I'm going to brag on my students. We had a peer-to-peer and we were talking about like oral stage dysphagia, right? And so in private practice, in home health, we get kiddos that are like picky eaters, right? That's the referral. Child is picky eater. Child's presenting with behavioral feeding disorders. We all know that behavioral feeding disorders happens in less than two to 3% of the population, but there it is, right? So with that diagnosis, we're watching these children and they have an immature chew pattern. They're holding the bolus interiorly. We're suspecting that like, you know, they're not really clearing the cohesive bolus when they swallow. But when you see that, that's when you need to make the referral out to take a peek at what's going on with their esophagus. Because what if the child has a series of strictures in their esophagus because of GERD, because of EOE? Uh, I have one little guy that we're working with and, um, he's fairly new to me and he has a rare, uh, chromosomal abnormality that has resulted in internal inflammation and at the same time, low tone. So his lower esophageal, his lower esophageal sphincter, while it's already passive is even more passive as well as his UES. And he gets recurrent, um, strictures because of the severity of his GERD that's manifesting as LPR, which is laryngopharyngeal reflux. And he has to go in for esophageal dilations, which is a fancy way of saying they sedate him. They put a scope in, the scope has a little balloon attached to it, and it stretches out these strictures. And for this child in particular, actually putting steroids at the site of where the strictures are is helping offset the level of inflammation and um, allowing more boluses to pass through. But guess what? He is improving in his chew pattern and taking more. There's very limited residue after he swallows now because his esophagus, it, um, the overall structure has improved. And so it wasn't necessarily an oral stage dysphagia. He had an esophageal stage dysphagia that was manifesting as like an oral stage picky eater problem, but mm-hmm. he couldn't articulate. I can't get it down. So he just limited the amount that went down. 
Does that, am I, am I explaining that well? I was super excited because we were having this whole conversation about it and they were like, what? And I was like, I know, mind blown. This is why we go to conventions because they learned so much about esophageal stage dysphagia at like last year's ASHA. I'm so sad we're not having ASHA this year. I'm so sad about it. (sighs) Hi, Cola Kitty. How are you? Can you hear her? She's sad too. (laughs) She said she's she was looking forward to flying to California, right? Just yeah. saying. No, I mean yeah. we always say how oral stage can be indicative of something going on further down. I mean, I have a kid that has Gary and he would like chew up the food. Yes, and he sorry. And he would chew up the food and then spit it out or he would lick like he'd lick um McDonald's chicken nuggets and french fries because he liked the salt but he would never swallow it because it mm-hmm. hurt mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay so we went through a lot of the diagnoses but one of the big pieces for me with gi is that i feel like we have to understand the testing that we want to ask for mm-hmm. right because we, we, we see a sign and symptom, just like you're describing, and we need internal eyes to figure out, okay, but what's actually going on? So um, I, I wanted to go through just a couple of those because I feel like that would, that would help. Uh, so when we're doing, when we're ruling out some of the GI issues, one of the easiest tests that we can ask for is simply an x-ray. A chest and a dominal. Oh my gosh, I can't say that word. A a dominable. Aaron, say it for me, x-ray. Chest, x-ray of your abdomen. I can say it that way. It sounds like the abominable snowman. Um, But those x-rays will tell us, well, how impacted is the intestines? And the reason why I also like to do higher up and, and request one for the lungs is I've seen so many kids have so much stool impacted, it pushes their diaphragms up and then actually pushes their base of their lungs up. So now we're even inhibiting um, the total lung capacity in the event that they should aspirate. They can't get enough air behind their cough to forcefully eject the aspirated contents. So I, I, and for our medically complex kiddos that may have um, BPD, as you said earlier, or like chronic lung disease, this this is critical. So I do recommend a chest X-ray and and a X-ray of your abdomen. We'll just go with that. <laughs> okay, uh, then we can go into the um, the actual like scopes. Okay. So one scope that I have requested frequently when I am concerned for strictures, when I'm concerned for taking biopsies to uh, rule out EOE, or do we have um, do we have a concern for pyloric stenosis? It's called an EGD. Okay, esophagastroduodenoscopy which is why I know I can't say these big words. I swear I'm smart, but like multisyllabic words are hard, but it's an EGD, right? So we're going to run a scope. (laughs) You didn't save me, by the way. You just let me like hang out there all awkward. (laughs) You run a scope down the esophagus into the stomach, into the first portion of the um, small intestines. 
And that, and it also allows them to do biopsies and to take pictures all the way down. Okay. And it can rule out structural abnormalities and tell us, Hey, their eosinophilic cell count is through the roof. Or, oh, by the way, when we were down there, we found out that they have um, an ulcer and it's bleeding or, you know, whatever the the cause may be. But an EGD allows you to physically view it. And it just blows my mind, the the quality of the pictures. That's just so humbling to me. All right. Now, an EGD varies very differently from a gastric emptying study, okay? So gastric emptying studies or motility studies, they're in radiology with barium. So you're seeing, you know, black and white images, okay? So with a gastric emptying study, um, you have the patient consume uh, barium, and that's either done orally or through an NG tube or through a G tube. And uh, a series of images or time lapse is completed to show the rate at which the barium physically moves through. Okay. Now, I mean, if it's going and it's a liquid, you would think that that would go through quickest. But for some of these kids, you know, when when they go to do the studies, you'll see like that their testing results may say dramatically increased time for uh, you know, con- bolus contents to move through, which gets back to the residuals that Aaron was talking about earlier. Now, if you have a kid who continues to have complaints or being full or not hungry, this is another one. This is the test that I would request. Mm-hmm. So um, upper GI just looks at uh, the esophagus and the small intestines, and that's also a barium swallow. A lower GI looks at how um, it's an x-ray image of the colon, large intestines, and rectums. And that's used to see, like, is there a blockage, a stricture? Um, and that's um, the lower GI is a barium enema. Um, not So I don't yeah. normally request that one. <laughs> well, and some, just be aware also, some people get because it's a some people get upper GI and modified barium swell study mixed up and you usually cannot mm-hmm. complete both of them on the same day. So mm-hmm. if you're working inpatient um they or I mean they're they have similar names so like nurses and sometimes residents will get the two of them mixed up. So when you're ordering a modified barium swell study be very clear when you speak to the physician about why you want it and what you want it for. Cause I've had that happen in the past where they call me or they call us and say that like, ask us where we were, but they were getting an upper GI. So it just can be confusing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I okay. had an upper GI and the physician says, well, they didn't aspirate. Okay. It's not the same thing. <laughs> Thank you. It's different. It is different. Different is good. That's a motto I use with one of my kids. Educate. The more you know. Is that reading rainbow? That's reading rainbow, isn't it? I'm like, doing. I'm old. Somebody somewhere is like PBS. Yes, reading rainbow. Okay. All right. So we've. I think we've covered the bulk of GI. Why did we think we could cover so many different terms? I don't know. Oh my gosh. We always worry that we're going to run out of like good stuff 
And so we try to like pack more in and then we're rushing. Okay, let's go to neurology and then circle back around to RD. How about that? Okay. Okay. All right. So then, all right. So neurology. So the terms that we're going to see, um, well, they could be a lot. Um, um, some of the biggies, and these are not terms that, these are not terms that we can give. Okay. So if I, and I say that with caution, like I've walked in and done an evaluation on a kiddo and um, he had curls for days. Oh my gosh. Great big curls. Right. And like, I wish I could style my hair like that. And I always kind of, if, you know, if it's appropriate, like feel their facial structures, feel the shape of their head, see if there's any um, flattening on the surface. But when I put my hand on his head, it just kept going through to the curls and there was definitive signs and symptoms of microcephaly, but the hair masked it. And I can't say patient has microcephaly. I can say patient presents with signs and symptoms of a small head and then call their pediatrician and say, hey, this is concerning. Can we get a referral to neurology? Um, Mom absolutely declined. That case did not go too far um, because denial, grief, seven stages of grief, absolutely understand and recognize, but it is what it is. Um, so microcephaly, small head, macrocephaly, incredibly enlarged head, um, may not be incredibly enlarged, but some of our little ones, when we go out, they're presenting with signs and symptoms of autism spectrum disorders. And they're also presenting with signs and symptoms of macrocephaly, uh, hydrocephaly, which is fluid on the brain for which we can get, uh, the typical, course of action for, uh, is a VP shunt, Mm -hmm. which just drains, um, yeah, it goes from the ventricle to the, the parietal opening. I'm saying that wrong. I just brain farted on the P. Yeah. It drains it from the ventricles into, um, the cerebral spinal fluid into their, um, their spinal column. And that's because for whatever reason, their body has an overproduction a fluid and it can't get out. Now, here's the catch. It's still technically hurricane season. And for those of you out West, um, when a hurricane passes over, the pressure drops and that can actually cause pressure to be applied to a VP shunt. So it's actually very common for um, adults or children when they're old enough to tell us and have the capacity, they'll tell you that their head hurts or they have a headache and it's the pressure, external pressure on their shunt. And shunts are also susceptible to fevers, illnesses. All of those factors can cause the shunts to clog and break or clog and fail. And some of our tiny humans are not... I think the technical word is viable. I don't like it, but they're not safe to survive the surgery to repair it. So it is what it is. So, okay. Those are some of my favorite terminologies. All right. Throw some narrow terms on me, lady. Um, HIE is a very common um, diagnosis you'll see in the NICU. Hypoxic, ischemic, Encephal- encephalopathy. Wow, my words. 
encephalopathy. Encephalopathy. <laughs> hey, I saved you. Don't forget that. <laughs> oh, um, and it's when the brain doesn't receive enough oxygen or blood flow for a period of time. Um, and a lot of what some NICUs will do is like a cooling protocol. And they like, I have never, I, I don't think I've ever seen it. Um, specifically, but it, the, what it's supposed to do is like, they essentially, I think it's like a cooling blanket or, um, they hope to kind of reverse some of that brain damage, which for some of the patients, it works really well. Um, they, we talk a lot about where was I? Cause I was looking at something else. Um, I have a love for, um, not love, but I love working with patients that have like perinatal or pediatric stroke, which often will lead to, um, and there are three types of strokes that we can really talk about that are common in pediatrics, Mm -hmm. um, arterial ischemic stroke when there's blockage of blood flow to the brain by a clot or like a narrowing of the artery, um, cerebral venous thrombosis, when there's a blockage in the dural venous sinuses, and then it drains, which drain blood from the brain, and then a hemorrhagic stroke um, when a blood vessel ruptures, which we know a lot of hemorrhagic strokes can be more, cause more severe damage. Mm-hmm. to the brain and um they can be like we talk about grade one through four as how they would rate um cvas or hem- interventricular hemorrhages grade one to two are mild sometimes one even two will go miss and then grade four often has a lot more damage. So those are important to consider if you are getting the medical records or if you know there is some sort of brain damage working hard to get the medical records because sometimes you have a patient that you're seeing in home health, you're trying to find the medical records, and then when you finally speak to the physician, you realize that they're functioning mostly on a brainstem, and that is very important information to have. Yes, because that will drastically change your plan, change your of, care. plan of care yeah yeah um do we want oh, to that go makes into types of cerebral palsy or do we not want to go more into like um diagnosis for um oh i don't know i need to i wanted to hit up a couple different rd terms um let's Okay, let's let's hit the CPs because this is pertinent because we need to recognize the different types of cerebral palsies, which are and the reason that blends. Okay, and Aaron and I land. It goes straight from okay. Now you have presented with signs symptoms of a CBA. You have a diagnosis of the cerebral vascular accident. You're in increased likelihood to have a subsequent CP diagnosis. And here's the catch: our grade two bleeds, our small bleeds, they may not. Um, you may not get a diagnosis or be accurately identified until you're a child. Um, a dear friend that was um, one of my mom's um, one of my mom's best friends, her daughter, who's like my age, uh, her little one, uh, was finally diagnosed 
with a very form of mild spastic CP, but not until she was in first grade. And she was always just like lagging in developmental norms, but it wasn't like a big lag. It was just like just a little bit off in walking, just a little bit off in in doing some activities. But it was when she started writing that they really saw the deficits in her fine motor skills. Mm -hmm. And they went back. They finally, she after a lot of advocacy, uh, they finally got um, a neuro consult. And sure enough, they found um, there was there was evidence in um, neuroimaging, I can't remember, um, that she had a grade two bleed a long time ago. And I guess they missed it in past medical records, but very mild case of spastic CP. So they did, they approached it differently and she's doing amazing now. Um, bless it. Oh, and she's such a pretty little girl with her pigtails. I love it. Okay, so spastic CPs. That's the most common type. 80% of individuals with cerebral palsy will have it. Um, also, the CDC has a killer website um, specifically for cerebral palsy. So please check out their website. Uh, then we have, um, we can go into, I'll tackle this multisyllabic word, dyskinetic cerebral palsy. And this is a big one that has um, like athetoid, choreoathetoid, and dystonic CP embedded underneath. And that presents as little ones that have like writhing movements or um, like un- like the movement, if they're reaching for something, it's not predictable. It might be like, like a rapid jut out and then they, but like they bring their arms back and it's almost like a, it's like a misfire in the neuromusculature, um, movement. Um, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It'll be in your head. So I would look for, uh, look for videos of like chorea movements or athetoid and you'll see it. Uh, Do you want to hit the other ones? Um, we have ataxic cerebral palsy which mm-hmm. you and I have both seen. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. they have difficulty with like quick movements and movements that require a lot of control because they do have problems with balance and coordination. Specifically, the patient that we saw would... Um, I'm trying to find the best way to describe, but balance was definitely an issue. Um, I mean, she was... A miracle baby but um yes she was when, yeah when it requires like very significant concentration and control you could see more of the the deficits and then you can also see mixed cp so they can have a combination of these which is obviously more difficult to diagnose and more difficult to treat because these all seem um very different in how they present mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Okay. So the last, oh no, did I shut it? No. Phew. Okay. The last um, couple of terms really quickly pertain to the RD world. Okay. And there's a killer website. It's by Aspen, the American Society for, um, say it for me, Aaron, per- parent- parenteral, parenteral, parenteral and enteral. Thank you. 
I always want to say perinatal, parental, yep, and internal nutrition. And their website, uh, nutritioncare.org backslash guidelines underscore and underscore clinical underscore resources backslash Ian underscore formula underscore guide. Do the Google. Um, But they go through and they talk about um, internal nutrition, okay? And specifically, they explain the different types of formulas that we can uh, provide our patients. And what I love about their website is that they break down, um, so they, they break it down into polymeric, poly, God bless America. You can't talk. This is why I t- teach the tiny humans to swallow, uh, hydrolyzed formula, elemental formula, and then blenderized tube feeds. Okay. So that kind of goes down in complexity. So an example of the standard formula would be a, um, you know, a name brand that we may or may not know that you can buy at a Target and it has um, a lot of corn product in it and it's milk and soy based. Okay. Then we can go down to a hydrolyzed formula where it's broken down. So it's not like the full milk protein. It's broken down to like a whey protein. And then hydrolyzed is when, um, I'm sorry, elemental is when it's broken down further into a free amino acid. Okay. That's pertinent because if you walk in the door and say, you've got a kid on, um, an elemental formula like Elecare or Neocate will then when Aaron said earlier, we have to prime the gut, if their gut can only handle an amino acid-based formula, it's going to be really hard to then turn around and ask them to handle like a true blenderized diet. Um, honestly, the person who turned me onto this um, is Melissa with Real Food Blends. She's the one who told me about this website because I was complaining that I had concern that there was like, I still had a kid that was having an allergic reaction to something in the formula. And so we were troubleshooting the case and she goes, well, didn't, you know, you can just research it here on this website. It even goes through and tells you the ones that are gluten-free, um, that are kosher, that, which is great for cultural competency and that, um, you know, that have whey protein embedded in it and whey is another form of dairy. So unless you're, I didn't know that until, you know, two or three years ago that whey was another name for dairy. So if you have a kid that has a dairy intolerance, but yet you go and find out that their hydrolyzed formula is whey protein based as opposed to like a pea protein based, bad things could happen. So dun, dun, dun. There it is. But I, I love this website. So um, I, I would highly recommend y'all check out Aspen. Um, also they have a really pretty, um, uh, logo because like the E actually looks like a, uh, a hanging bag for tube feeds. And I just, the way they did, it looks lovely. So well done. Whoever did the branding, <laughs> we did it. Oh my God. My brain hurts. <laughs> oh, what did, what did we forget? I'm sure there's like so much. There's so many more, but it's okay. We got a good amount. We, we, we did all right. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. So bottom line, when you're picking up a chart, <laughs> let's rephrase that. 
when you're doing home health and a parent's relaying the information to you because you can't get your hands on a chart um, and then you contact the physician and they give you a chart, if you're unfamiliar with the terminology, please research it specific for the case. And, and, and not just within the wheelhouse frame house of speech pathology because we can't stay in our own little box. Like you have to go to the different associations. You have to go to the different organizations and pull the terms from, from them. Uh, that's critical. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Oh, me, oh, my. Okay, lady. Yes. Um, also, I just have to give um, the lovely Miss Erin a shout out. Our sweet Erin uh, co-founded a nonprofit uh, called the Millick Ford Foundation, and it is a 5013C with uh, the pending. mission pending, pending, almost there. Yes, pending. Yes. But uh, the whole purpose of the foundation is to help offset the cost for the patients that are receiving speech therapy at their private practice, um, It's a, which is also actually a uh, uh, nonprofit organization, uh, and to help these families get the second opinions that they are in dire need of. Um, so I am so, so, so proud of you. Um Congratulations. Uh, also, uh, yeah. So check it out. I, I love their, I love their logo. So y'all are on, y'all have an Instagram account, right? We do have an Instagram account. Yes. And so yes, and our website, and our website's beautiful. And you did the website. Look at you all high tech yes. fancy. <laughs> yes. So be sure task. to, <laughs> it's a task. <laughs> So be sure to check it out. And everybody, thank you for joining us. Um, Hold tight. Let me switch this over to questions, okay? Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.